right. Welcome everyone back to another edition of New Books in Education. And I think I hit a milestone with this uh, upcoming podcast because I have my first uh, repeat guest on the show today. Uh, so I, I'm uh, happy to introduce uh, Kevin Doherty and uh, Rebecca Nato. And I, this book is The Politics of Performance Funding for Higher Education Origins, Discontinuations, and Transformations. And it's from John Hopkins University Press, and it's just published this year. Uh, so thank you uh, both for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. We're very Thanks happy to be here. Us. And uh, if you could just start, maybe uh, could tell us a little bit about yourselves and uh, how this project uh, maybe came together. How did you guys get uh, to work on this together? Okay, so Rebecca, why not head off then? So I'm, uh, I'm Kevin Darty. I'm a, an associate professor of higher education policy at, in the Education Policy and Social Analysis uh, Program at Teachers College or Department at Teachers College. And the genesis of this was beginning about four years ago um, with funding from Lumina Foundation. We began looking at the origins of performance funding in several states, um, why a good number of those states discontinued their performance funding programs but often reinstated them, um, how those performance funding programs changed during those years. Um, And at that point, we were looking at eight different states, Um, you know, for example, Washington, Illinois, South Carolina, Tennessee, Ohio, Indiana, Florida, among others. Um, And it was across those states that we were trying to establish kind of origins, change over time, and discontinuations. And for our book, we also uh, talked about what might be the likely future of performance funding. Sure, absolutely. And how about uh, you, Rebecca? Sure. I'm a uh, postdoctoral research associate with the Community College Research Center, um, I've been working on this project with Kevin since the very beginning. Um, I've always had an interest in higher education policy, and um, when Kevin told me he'd be interested in looking at uh, performance funding policies, it was something I was certainly interested in working on. So we've, um, as Kevin said, we've examined um, the origins of the policies, their trajectories, whether they become discontinued or whether they remain uh, relatively consistent over time, and then... Um, in a subsequent project, we examine implementation of performance funding. Sure, absolutely. Well, I guess if we can get uh, get into performance funding, maybe if you could just set us up. Uh, I'm not sure how familiar our audience will be with performance funding. So if you could maybe just describe a little bit of, of what that is, what that looks like, uh, and then we can kind of talk about maybe uh, where it started and... Uh, Mm-hmm. And also, Rebecca could talk a lot about the discontinuation. So performance funding is a program, uh, began in Tennessee in 1979, where states base part of their appropriation for higher education on outcomes indicators, not just I- input indicators like enrollments, but outcomes such as graduation, retention, job placement, and that kind of thing. Um, when states first started doing it, beginning with Tennessee in 1979 and then through the 90s, um, it typically took the form of a bonus where they would say, we're keeping your regular funding, but we'll give you additional funding based on things like graduation rates. And typically it didn't amount to that much money, maybe 1% to 5%, Tennessee being high around 5%. What happened beginning um, in the 2000s, and it really has accelerated over the last five to seven years, is states have increasingly moving to what's called performance funding 2.0, where the the indicators like 
graduation are embedded in the state funding base itself or in the state funding formula rather than being a bonus. Um, and the amount of money has started to get considerably larger so that some states are doing 20 to 25 percent, Tennessee 80 to 85 percent of the state appropriation for public higher education is now based on these outcome indicators. So a way of thinking about it is that it's somewhat like No Child Left Behind in that you're getting um, a a strong accountability system brought to bear on the schools. um, And um, there are differences we could talk about between higher ed and K through 12, but it's a not dissimilar phenomenon uh, arriving at higher education. Rebecca, uh, would you add anything? Um, I think that's a good description. I would also add that in the in the performance funding um, 2.0, we're seeing a lot more of a focus on completion. Um, it wasn't that it wasn't that the 1.0 program didn't involve college completion as an indicator, but we're seeing it more frequently in the 2.0 program. Um, Tennessee, I think, is a good example. When when that program started um, in the 1970s, completion was not an indicator. It focused on things like um, student performance on, on test scores and accreditation. And then it wasn't until much later that uh, graduation persistence was added um, to their 1.0 program. Their 2.0 program, which is much more recent, uh, focuses a lot on college completion. I think that's a trend in several states. I see. I see. And so, you, uh, Kevin, you kind of alluded to it, and Rebecca, if you, if you want to maybe comment on uh, the discontinuation that you guys talk about in, in the book where there's sorts of it starts and then stops and then potentially starts back again in, in some of the states. Can you maybe talk about that phenomenon a little bit? Yeah, Rebecca, do you want to pick up on that? Sure. Um, well, discontinuation is interesting when, um, when you consider the reasons for discontinuation. You don't see things like um, evaluations of how the policy is working, whether it's effective or not, whether it's actually achieving the goals that it's set out to achieve. Instead, you see things like uh, the lack of support for continued existence of the program. And that comes in a number of different forms. Um, first of all, uh, if there's turnover at the state legislature, like, for example, if, um, if a political party that champions performance funding um, is no longer in control of the legislature, or if the political champions are either term-limited out of office or they just move on to different things, then you see sort of erosion for support of the programs. And that seems to be a factor that preceded discontinuation in, in a lot of the states that we, that we examined. Also, um, in terms of support from... Um, the business community. Um, the business community likes the idea of performance funding. It sort of goes along with the pro-market um, ideology. But if, if there isn't sustained active support from the business community, that's another factor that we saw that, that weighed in on um, discontinuation of the program. Of the program. Um, changes in the economy also played a role. So in performance funding 1.0 programs where they were bonus programs, if there was a downturn in the economy, there was less support for sort of giving these added bonuses to higher education institutions. But even in uh, 2.0 programs where it was, it was embedded in the base, you saw a lack of institutional support uh, for performance funding because in economic downturns, institutions grew protective of their base funding and, and wanted to focus their attention and their political capital sort of on protecting that. Um, so, again, even though there are changes in the economy, it still factors into the lack of support issue. Sure. Do you want to add anything on top of yeah, that? Yeah, no, Rebecca put it very well. So the thing that really had interested us in this is that so um, 38 states at one point or another have adopted performance funding, and we were really struck by the fact that 24 of them at one point or another discontinued. 
performance funding. Now, a good, the majority of those have discontinued it, reenacted it later, but we were struck by the volatility in the support for performance funding. And, um, and in the book that, um, um, that we're talking about, Rebecca uh, took the lead in writing the chapter, looking at the causes of discontinuation in detail. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very intricate set of factors, as she points out, that came together to explain that. Right, right. Well, maybe we can talk about sort of how you guys analyze that. Uh, you, you did a lot of interviews with policymakers and we call policy entrepreneurs, if you want to maybe talk about that uh-huh. a little bit. And, and you kind of uh, identify different uh, coalitions uh, and, and you could see sort of the landscape of what was going on. Can you, can you maybe talk sure. about that a little Let bit? Let me talk about that. So we were looking then at the origins of performance funding. Um, so we're looking at eight states. Um, it came in two different phases. So we, we have actually separate chapters on this. Phase one, beginning with Tennessee, ran from 1979 to 2000. And it was on, most of those were performance, what we call 1.0 programs, these bonus programs. Phase two ran from 2007 on. And about half of those programs were these performance funding 2.0 programs that Rebecca was mentioning. Um, to try to get a sense of what was going on. So we're looking at eight states, um, eight states in the first case of wave one, three in the case of wave two. We interviewed state officials, business people, um, uh, state officials both elected and in the higher education boards. We talked to uh, leaders of uh, state universities and and public institutions, um, academics, uh, observers uh, of the politics uh, uh, of the state, so a wide variety of people um, and um, across these states. Um, what we found in terms of, let's look at the wave one origins, what you might expect and a lot of people talk about is that there was a coalition of state officials and business people pushing performance funding in the name of greater efficiency and effectiveness. But what we found was going on as well is that there was another coalition involving higher education uh, institutions that were motivated more by a concern of finding new, new forms of funding at a time when it was hard to get funding from the state. And they thought that putting, uh, looking for funding that would take the form of a bonus but would be based on improved performance, that that might be a potent argument for new funding. So they joined this effort, for, but for rather different reasons. And interestingly, the business role in that first coalition was often indirect. It wasn't just that they joined and they pushed, is that in many respects they provided a lot of the ideological basis for the coalition because they had been long arguing for you know, greater efficiency in government, greater use of business-like methods. So this provided very fertile territory for arguments for performance funding to be spread, even in cases where business wasn't all that actively involved, it played a very powerful indirect ideological role. What we found in the second wave, that's the one beginning around 2007, uh, here things were a little different. Again, you had state officials and business playing an important role, pursuing you know their concerns of efficiency and effectiveness, but governors now emerged as a really central uh, actors, which they hadn't been before, and we're arguing that this may reflect a change in kind of the governance structure for higher education, that we now have governors and legislators playing a much more active role. The state higher education boards are not quite as dominant as they used to be, and this is an interesting shift. The Great Recession played a big role in that, really catalyzing a lot of this movement. And interestingly, that higher ed coalition kind of disappeared. So, yes, there's some support for performance funding 2.0, 
but their role was pretty much one of kind of muted, not opposition, but skepticism and concern. We found much less direct and obvious support than as we did in the in the Wave One coalition. Uh, so there's some interesting shifts, and that somewhat greater skepticism on the part of higher education might be of, at issue if, let's say, another big recession were to come, or as Rebecca was pointing out, um, there's a wave of champions of performance funding 2.0 leave the legislature or the governorship. That might set the stage for yet another wave of retrenchment. Um, so that's one of the things we can talk about a little later. Is it's interesting to think about what might be the the future of, sure. of performance funding. Um, Rebecca, would uh, did I miss something? Would you add anything? Uh, the only thing I would add is that with the 2.0 programs, we did see a more active role from sort of national and regional policy ah, yeah. and foundations. Yeah. Um, just just actively coming out in support of performance funding and even helping to make suggestions for program design, and that wasn't seen in the uh, in the first wave of performance funding programs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you maybe talk about that a little bit more? Our, our audience might be interested, sort of you, I think you guys talk about uh, the Gates Foundation as, as one of those uh, sort of national organizations, and, and you mentioned Lumia as well. Mm-hmm. Um, Lumina, yeah. yeah. Do you want to talk about that a bit more, Rebecca? Um, sure. So, um, so there was definitely some support from um, foundations like Gates and Lumina that um, that had spent some time um, sort of looking into performance funding as a as a possible um, method to in- improve college completion rates. Um, there was an organization known as Complete College America that's been um, very active in, in sort of lobbying the states and also um, providing some guidance to um, to campuses and to state boards about. Um, what, what sorts of mechanisms they could implement on their campuses to improve completion. Um, there was also a, um, a consulting firm that worked with Lumina that helped um, provide information to the state in terms of um, how to design performance funding programs. Um, and these, these, these organizations just did sort of come up, I'd say, in the past um, maybe five years or so um, to really actively promote um, performance funding as a mechanism to improve college completion, and the goal, of course, being college completion. The idea that um, we, you know, students are getting into college, and a lot of them are not completing, and we want to see um, completion rates nationwide improve. And 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 a lot of these organizations have really latched onto the idea of performance funding as um, sort of a prime motivator to get institutions to improve their completion rate. Mm-hmm. How about with the uh, with the federal government? Is there any connection there with the uh, performance funding 2.0 or in the past? Well, it's it has certainly been strongly encouraging it. Um, the Obama administration has come out very strongly in favor of it. Um, and there was talk, for example, that if there had been a race to the top for higher education, as it was for K-12, through that the Obama administration would probably have tied it to um, state efforts to do performance funding uh, if they weren't already doing so. And, of course, we know at the national level, the federal, the Obama administration has been talking about developing this post-secondary institution rating system um, that they would then propose to tie uh, found, you know, institutional Pell Grant funding to. Mm-hmm. So, the, so there's a lot of talk and there's every reason to believe that the, that the federal government is going to get more involved. And there's been resistance on the part of, of Republicans, but 
It still may be that this is one of those things that is kind of a secular shift that will continue under a new administration, whether Democratic or a Republican. So it, what it fits into is that there's certainly strong reason to think the performance funding, if anything, is going to further spread and intensify. If you look at, you know, strong support from the federal government and if the federal government itself does a performance funding system. Uh, Rebecca was you know, pointing out the role of, you know, strong support from the foundations and policy organizations like the National Governors Association. Um, and there's talk as well of intensifying it in the sense of having performance funding. People, Some people have been talking about a performance funding 3.0 mm-hmm. that might involve, for example, um, labor market indicators like job mm-hmm. placement or learning outcomes assessment. It's hard to tell whether that would succeed because getting good labor market indicators is very tricky and, and how to establish how well an institution is doing on this. Learning outcomes assessment is very hard to do and uh, potentially quite controversial. And here's where faculty have been fairly quiet, might get much more involved. And what that then leads to is um, you could see on the side that performance funding Yes, it's very likely to spread and intensify, but it also may run into sig- significant kind of um, pressures in, in the opposite direction. Um, might there be growing resistance on the part of faculty and others um, if learning outcomes assessment is put in, particularly if there's if it's done without much consultation with faculty? Um, we've been doing research on, on the unintended impacts of performance funding. Our, our colleague Hannah Lahr took the lead on a project on that, uh, finding uh, rather substantial reports from from people about either unintended impacts occurring or that they could occur. If those intensify, that may intensify opposition. Um, And we still don't have really strong evidence that performance funding has uh, statistically significant impacts on student outcomes. Um, It may occur with performance funding 2.0, but we still don't have studies on that. What if those studies come out and don't find a strong effect? Mm. All of these things then might become strong forces that may slow down or even begin to move back uh, the pendulum on performance funding. So it's going to be a very interesting next five years to see what its future is going to be. Yeah. Rebecca, do you want to add on top of that some, you know, talking about the idea of sort of future of uh, performance funding? Um, Sure. Um, I, I want to go back to something that Kevin had brought up at the beginning of, of this discussion, which is uh, the more active role of, of legislatures and, and governors in sort of um, coming up with these funding policies. Higher education is an institution that is used to having a great deal of autonomy and self-governance. Mm-hmm. And um, what we've been seeing, at least with regard to performance funding and the trajectories that these programs have taken, is that there is more um, regulation coming from um, not just the state boards, but from the legislature and, and from um, governors in some cases. Mm-hmm. So I think um, that's, a, that's certainly a trend that we've seen with respect to these policies. It's something that has caused um, some sort of friction with higher education institutions in the past. So I think that institutions will need to figure out sort of how to, how to navigate um, this new environment that, um, that does the, um, some more involvement of the state that might be viewed as sort of an intrusion on institutional autonomy. At the same time, I think that policymakers will need to sort of understand the history of higher education and their, and their longstanding um, 
uh, role with self-governance and try to make their policies, design their performance funding policies so that they do have room for institutional input and feedback and get that buy-in from the institutions if they want these programs to be sustained long-term. Right. Right, so we're we're st- we're kind of at a, a crossroads, uh, I guess. What kind of what it sounds mm-hmm. like? Um, it, it really does seem sort of, you know, the, these policies they've kind of come in what you guys call waves. However, you also introduce us to the idea that this is sort of incrementally changing, and so it's sort of like the the idea that the the, the boiling frog doesn't quite know it's sort of boiling. And in, in this case, the boiling frog would be the sort of higher education institutions, and they're sort of slowly losing what, what you just talked about, Rebecca's it's autonomy. So can you maybe talk about some of these ideas of incrementalism or, or maybe the forces that we might say are working against? Um, well, what we found is both incrementalism and, and rapid change. Okay. Um, and Rebecca, do you want to talk about the incrementalism and the rapid change? Because, you know, you wrote that chapter for our book that uh, talk, brought, certainly talked about incrementalism. Different sort of competing forces going on that led to change occurring after policy adoption, but it also led to this change being incremental in nature. Um, first, in terms of um, the change happening, the political and economic context were, were evolving as these as these programs that lasted a long time um, existed. So, for example, in Tennessee, whose program has been around the longest, they went through many different um, sort of political administrations in the state. They went through different economic patterns, and yet, and we did see fluctuations in their, um, in their spending patterns, in how much, how, what percentage of funding was going to be coming from performance funding versus enrollment-based funding, and, um, and also in terms of the indicators that they're using. Um, a lot of times you'll see in the state um, interest groups, including higher education institutions, sort of pushing for different indicators, maybe ones that they feel fit their mission better. Um, and, of course, policymakers, new policymakers come in and they have um, different ideas about what should be in these programs and whether these programs should exist at all. So all of these different forces were sort of pushing for change. At the same time, the change remained in- incremental, um, in large part due to the existence of policy monopolies, which are basically um, actors who tend to have a lot of influence um, and almost exclusive influence over a policy area. So a lot of times you'll see maybe a higher education coordinating board have a lot of influence and control over the performance funding program. Um, Tennessee, I think, is a great example of that. Their Higher Education Commission basically ran the performance funding program um, and and brought in different institutions on a periodic basis to get their feedback on it, but but was basically in charge. And that's why you see that program being sustained for the long term. And also programs that become institutionalized, um, if they become a part of the culture, if they're around for many years and, and institutions just sort of get used to them, um, it becomes more difficult to, to really change the program or to get rid of it entirely. So that's why you see change, but you see it happening at an incremental rate rather than a drastic rate. Mm-hmm. So, and so we trace that in one of these chapters, but then what can happen, kind of apropos your, your point of well, is that you can get sudden change. And what we found in Ohio and Tennessee is that they have these performance funding 1.0 programs, things have kind of been incrementally changing. And then they went through periods of very rapid change. Uh, both of them adopted these Wave 2 performance funding 2.0 programs. Tennessee added this uh, much larger program to its existing performance funding program. Ohio replaced one with the other. But these are very rapid changes. Um, the recession played an important role, but very key was the growing role of the governor. 
So the governor in both cases became a much more powerful actor involved in higher education policy and became a key source of this change. So it kind of is higher education may be subject to, you know, these sudden changes, particularly with the entrance of new actors, governors. um, Rebecca was pointing to the role of increasing role of foundations. Mm -hmm. Um, You're raising the issue of, of the president and federal policy. I mean, if the federal government goes for performance funding, that's going to be a very decided shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think higher education is, is then going to have to cope. I think what I'd like to stress, to go back to something Rebecca was saying, is a lot of these changes, are they, they, they can occur without much feeling that there is a need for careful consultation with higher education institutions, mm-hmm. that, that they're resistant, what do they have to add, they're part of the problem. But the danger there is the institutions, you know, part of the way in which a lot of faculty have been take why they do what they do is often because they may not be paid that much. What they like is the ability to have a fair degree of voice in what they do. If you suddenly abrogate that by removing that, you're, you're going to be greatly harming a key part of the motivation, a lot of faculty and a key part of the ethos of higher education. So I think um, I would hope to be that colleges are not these frogs that might get boiled, but rather that we're seeing a changing context, but that leaves room for higher education institutions and their constituents, Mm -hmm. students, faculty, administrators, to have some considerable voice, because these are important, complex, and rather delicate organizations. And it's not entirely clear that policymakers are always aware of that, and they can make changes that may seem appealing, but can have quite deleterious consequences. That's part of the reason, and I can talk about it in just a bit, that we were very interested in what were the unintended impacts mm-hmm. of performance funding, ones that hadn't been anticipated by policymakers, but could be quite substantial and quite deleterious. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, we, let's, let's get into some of those unintended, unintended impacts of uh, performance funding. Uh, Rebecca, do you want to maybe start us off there? Oh, sure. Um, well, um, I should preface this by saying that um, in our research, we didn't see a lot of evidence that these things are actually happening, but we were told by, mm-hmm. um, by um, people who we spoke to that, that the, there was definitely a concern of, about these things happening. Sure. Um, and one of them is that uh, perhaps the standards themselves would be lowered within classrooms for students to sort of pass a, pass a course and therefore... Uh, move on to their move on to their degree. Things like um, grade inflation, or maybe just lowering of standards of what's acceptable work, um, because the institutions would be under pressure to um, to increase their graduation rate. Um, Kevin, do you want to talk about some of the others? Yeah. So um, I should point out that the, this research on unintended impacts, etc., is coming from a, a, a study that we did after this book. Mm. Um, we have completed that study. We came out with a series of reports that are available on the Community College Research Center website, and we're pursuing publication of a book uh, that will pull them together. And um, Rebecca and, and I, working with um, several other colleagues, Sosanya Jones, Hannah Lar, Lara Fiat, and Vikash Reddy, what we looked at was the implementation and impacts of performance funding in three states, Indiana, Ohio, and Tennessee, and we're looking at what impact it had on, you know, were the, uh, did the institutions make changes in their academic or student uh, support policies? Um, uh, what were the uh, impacts on students? Um, 
what obstacles did the institutions encounter in responding? Uh, what were the unintended impacts? Uh, and the unintended impacts analysis was particularly headed up by Hanna Lahr. So one of the ones is the one that Rebecca just mentioned is that we had about a good number of our respondents. We were talking to university faculty and administrators and community college faculty and administrators, 18 institutions in three states. Um, good number are reporting either that they had seen or were anticipating that they might see things such as um, great inflation, because as institutions came under greater pressure to graduate more people, might there be pressure start being put on faculty to maybe not be so quick to give out lower grades that might then lead to students leaving. Um, we also had fairly frequent reports that they saw happening or that they saw thought might happen was institutional restriction on enrollment of less prepared students who might be less likely to finish and therefore not count as much in a performance funding system. That is, the institution would uh, not be deriving as much revenue from those students. Mm -hmm. So, um, and here the concern is that this could occur in very quiet ways. An institution does not reach out as actively Mm -hmm. towards high schools with the tend to have somewhat less prepared students. Uh, It may cut back on sections of courses that tend to attract a lot of these students. And by that, it could be quietly shifting its student composition in order to do better on the performance metrics. But particularly in the case of community colleges or mass access for your institutions, this would be a substantial change in their missions. Mm -hmm. So we were concerned about this. And we have a report that um, looked at this as well as reports that looked at um, the obstacles and um, the policy instruments and uh, Rebecca uh, did a, a chapter report that looked at um, the institutional changes the college has made. Okay. Rebecca, do you want to comment on that at all? Or Oh, sure. Um, so what's interesting about, about this is, is we did see a lot of changes on campus that were sort of designed to help with student success, um, some of them being in, enhancing advisement, um, enhancing um, tutoring and supplemental instruction. Um, making changes in, in developmental education to get students um, who are entering college um, at below college level sort of reading and math and writing skills to get them up to college level. Um, some, some reorganization in, in the departments, um, for example, especially in student services, you saw a lot of institutions um, um, creating sort of a one-stop shop for student services where they could come to one central location and get their, their counseling and their advising and their tutoring all together. Um, but at the same time, there were other there were, there were other forces at work, um, other policy initiatives, other organizations, external organizations that were sort of promoting these changes to happen on campus. So while performance funding, um, according to our respondents, certainly did play a role in getting a lot of these programs sort of up and running and, and off the ground, um, they weren't the only, performance funding policies were not the only factor involved. Uh, but we were told by by our respondents on the campuses that. You know, these are things that were going to happen anyway, and now that institutions are, are you know, being funded in part, at least in part, based on outcomes, that it sort of um, sped up the process of getting these, these new um, campus-level programs and, and campus-level departments up and running. Okay. I, I, one question might be potentially out of the scope of the book, but it comes up, it seems like the state comes up a lot, Tennessee. We've already talked about it several times in the interview. And, uh, of course, it was the first uh, state to, to have performance funding. And it always seems like 
Tennessee uh, sort of experimenting with education. They have in higher education. They 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 just um, they had made community colleges free uh, recently. And what what is the political landscape for education or higher education in Tennessee that makes this sort of experimentation, if, if you can call it that? Uh, what? Yeah, Rebecca, do you want to pick up? Because, of course, you were very much involved with our Tennessee research. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's very interesting. Um, in Tennessee, we saw um, sort of a very strong um, higher education commission, which coordinates higher education in the state. Um, it seems to be a very active organization that, that's constantly thinking about ways of innovating um, higher education and, and how higher education is financed. Um, so it was certainly a policy actor in its own right and a policy developer in its own right. Um, at the same time, we, we heard from some of the respondents we spoke to in Tennessee that the state, um, they're very concerned that the state might not have the greatest reputation um, when, when looking at office these days, because it might not have the greatest reputation for education and for higher education. So there's a lot of concern with wanting to sort of improve its image on the on national landscape in terms of a, a state that takes higher education very seriously and does it well. Um, so those, those are some of the main factors, I think, in, in what drives a lot of the innovation in higher education coming out of Tennessee. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Lena, let me add a, uh, sure. just to that. I think Rebecca put it very well. The fact that the state, you know, has, you know, it, it has been one of the less economically developed mm-hmm. state has very much played a role in their thinking about the need to do as well as they can with their educational system and that education has become a central kind of economic strategy for the state for many years. I think that played an important role. And I think we were all impressed with the fact that um, state officials there had a lot of continuity and expertise. Like Rebecca was mentioned, the case of the Tennessee Higher, Edu- Higher Education Coordinating Board, um, they have a, a kind of a central staff of um, very thoughtful, able people who've been in those jobs for a while. So it's kind of interesting to sort of see what happens where you have a, a, a powerful, effective civil service mm. that can provide and affect policy leadership and consideration over a period of time and how important that is in policy development. Um, I think we tend to forget how important that is, and I thought Tennessee illustrated it very well. Okay. Very nice. Very nice. And uh, this book's mostly domestic-based, but you do have some international comparisons Mm-hmm. Can you maybe just uh, talk a little bit about what's going on in the international scene with performance funding? Yeah, so in order to, we have one chapter uh, that we try to provide a bit of a comparison to uh, compare and contrast performance funding for higher education in the United States to the same in Europe. And we were struck by the differences. I mean, the, one of the ones that immediately comes to mind is performance funding in Europe emanates from the national government almost exclusively. So if you're talking about Dutch or Swedish or Austrian performance funding, it's coming from the national government. Interestingly, in countries that are more federal, like Germany, then you do get a provincial role. But So there's a big difference there. Here, the states are really driving it. Abroad, it was the national government. Um, a lot of what they were focusing on in their performance funding in Europe, we were struck by, was focusing on research. Mm. Um, Whereas that has been a pretty minimal part of the performance funding formulas that we've encountered here, research was much more important there. Um, And a lot of their performance funding took the form of of performance contracts where the government would extend money and ask the institutions to agree to certain goals, you know, 
Within five years, you'll be doing the following. And that kind of approach has been tried in the United States, but it's much less common. Um, uh, so there, there were some quite interesting differences. But it is interesting that performance uh, funding is being rather extensively used abroad. And in that case, we, we may be dealing with a pretty broad-scale phenomenon. A lot of people are talking about we're seeing this kind of immense shift towards what some people call an audit society mm-hmm. or an evaluative state. Um, so these kind of accountability developments in the United States are by no means unusual, though I think we need a lot more to understand where this is going and what the long-term implications of what might be a rather profound societal shift. Okay. Rebecca, do you have anything to, to add with, with that question? Um, no, not really. I, I do want to say, and this, this isn't really discussed in the book, but I think that, um, that a lot of times um, you might see other countries looking to the United States um, for a model, so to speak, because um, the United States does have such a well-regarded higher education system here. So, um, so I think that might be um, maybe a future trend. Um, if, if we're seeing it abroad, we might see it more frequently as it becomes more institutionalized here. Okay, sure. And uh, I guess a question to both of you, just the, you have any last words just on the book or, or uh, that you want the audience to take away? I think maybe, and Rebecca, you'd be very interested in your thoughts too. Um, I think our sense is, and the reason we've spent a lot of time looking at the political origins of and discontinuation of performance funding in this book and, you know, its implementation and impact in, you know, this second study we mentioned that we will be pursuing publication on and uh, we already have had published reports on. What's animating that is a real sense that performance funding is a quite interesting, fundamental uh, development in higher education that really bears very careful scrutiny, that it could have um, substantial benefits. Um, At the same time, we need to understand how it plays out, because it could also produce effects that might be uh, of concern, so that um, I think it's a phenomenon that we should certainly look at, think about, entertain, but at least for, for state and institutional policymakers, I would think it's not something you want to leap at. You want to very carefully think through how it's going to work, what might be the unintended impacts, what might you do to try to uh, prevent those unintended impacts, what might you do to make performance funding work as effectively as possible. Um, and in that sense, states like Tennessee are very interesting because they've tried to do that quite carefully. Um, it isn't to say that there aren't problems with their programs as well as with any kind of human policy, but uh, their carefulness is something I think we would hope a lot of states will emulate, um, and that hasn't always been the case. And Rebecca, any, any final thoughts? Sure, um, and this sort of um, expands on the point about um, Tennessee's carefulness with regard to performance funding, is that I think that um, policymakers should take seriously um, the institutional role in policy design. Um, and just to use Tennessee as an example again, um, it, was, it was the creation initially of the, high, of the Higher Education Commission, but the commission itself actually brought in um, representatives of the higher education campuses to give feedback um, on the policy design, what the, what the metrics should be. Um, and then every five years, they brought them back. They brought back people from the institutions to tell them, how is the program working? How might it be changed? How could it be more effective? And the, the Higher Education Commission really listened to the institutions and took that feedback into account 
in, in developing, um, sort of reissuing the metrics every five years. Um, that's, that's an example of a very successful performance funding program, and they've learned um, from that experience to include institutions' voice in their performance funding 2.0 program as well. So when you understand that a loss of support sort of preceded the discontinuation of performance funding in a lot of states, it becomes very important to get institutional buy-in in these programs. And I think state policymakers can very easily get that buy-in by incorporating institutions' um, institutions' voice and their thoughts on, on these programs um, at the policy design stage. Okay. Fantastic. Well, final question we always have for the uh, New Books Network, uh, but what's next? You guys kind of talked a little bit about it, but uh, maybe briefly uh, tell us what's on your plate. Um, well, immediately, you know, we're pursuing the publication of this uh, book on the implementation and impacts of performance funding uh, based on um, this study that we finished at uh, the end of last summer and issued a series of reports. Um, and uh, um, I can briefly mention for myself, but I also want to make sure Rebecca talks about her coming projects. Um, uh, I'll be um, uh, on sabbatical doing a Fulbright in um, England in the spring of 2016, and I'm thinking of beginning to start shifting towards another policy topic that's been of great interest to me, which is what is the role of informational inequality or information asymmetry uh, in um, producing inequalities by class and race in students' access and success in higher education. So the issue there being, are differences between students of different backgrounds in the amount and quality of information they have about the higher education system, how to effectively access it, how to navigate through it, how big a role does that play in producing inequality, and what are policies that can be effective in mitigating or reducing that class and racial informational inequality. That's something I'm, I'm beginning to look at. Okay. So, but that's for myself. So, sure. Rebecca, uh, what, what do you have for us? Well, um, I have an article that's about to come out in um, the next issue of the Journal of Higher Education that um, discusses the politics surrounding the federal rulemaking process for higher education. Um, the rulemaking process is um, conducted in the United States Department of Education, um, basically after Congress passes a large piece of legislation such as the Higher Education Act. It's up to government agencies, such as the Department of Education, to sort of come up with the regulations that will implement those larger pieces of legislation, sort of fill in the gaps um, for areas that the statute leaves out or is vague about, and provide the details for how these, um, these, these large pieces of legislation are going to look um, on campus and, and in state government. Um, and what's interesting about this process is that it occurs um, in, a, in an agency composed of unelected officials, and they bring in um, interest groups to sort of play a role in help, helping to design the regulations. Um, there is a role for the general public to play, and Congress was, um, was um, careful to, to mention that higher education students have to be involved in this process. But what my research found is that um, the actors who, who tend to wield a lot of influence in the process, particularly with regard to regulations that are more controversial and more visible, um, are the powerful, well-resourced interest groups, the Department of Education itself, and then in a less direct way, Congress and, and uh, the prevailing presidential administration. So I discussed some of those findings in this, in this article that's coming out in uh, May 2015 in the Journal of Higher Education. Um, also in my role at the Community College Research Center, 
I'm part of a research team that's examining um, developmental education in the United States. Um, our portion of the project is, is, is a descriptive study that's looking at uh, um, what the landscape of developmental education is currently in the United States. Um, what, what, is, what are institutions doing um, when students are admitted who, who are not testing up to college level in, in reading and, and writing and math? What are they doing to help get the students up to college level? And that, that project is, is just now beginning. Okay, fantastic. We look forward to sort of all of that research, uh, very all connected into higher ed. But first, I encourage the audience uh, to go check out the Politics Performance Funding for Higher Education, Origins, Discontinuations, and Transformations. And I think both the authors, Kevin Doherty and Rebecca, and Rebecca Nato, and uh, that's from John Hopkins Press, uh, 2015, and you can find the link uh, to, to the outlets on our website. And uh, thank you uh, both for joining me, and to all of our audience, uh, I hope you learned something.